about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Skip Morrison. He'll be answering your questions on fly tying, made clear and simple. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of one of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of our the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. Let other people know about what's happening over here at Ask About Fly Fishing. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Skip Morris about fly tying made clear and simple. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Skip, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we're going to give away tonight for our drawing tonight. We'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. And if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Skip's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on the link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Skip's book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. Sometimes it's a two-part question, so pay attention. And it'll be about something that Skip and I talk about during the show. You submit your answer along with your name and your location in the text box on our homepage. It's the same text box that you use during the show to ask a question. So listen closely, take some good notes, pay attention, and maybe you'll win Skip's book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. Our guest tonight is Skip Morris. There are a few names in the world of fly fishing so widely known and solidly established as Skip Morris. Skip has published 19 fly fishing books, including the genuine bestseller currently in its 22nd printing, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. He has also co-authored authored many other books, including Fly Tying Clear and Simple 2, 
advanced techniques, the art of tying the nymph, the art of tying the dry fly, the art of tying the bass fly, tying foam flies, concise handbook of fly tying, custom graphite fly rod, Morris and Chan on fly fishing trout lakes, waterproof fly fisher's guide for western fly hatches, Morris on tying flies, trout flies for rivers, and his most recent book, 365 Fishing Tips for Trout, Bass, and Panfish. That's not enough. He's written over 300 articles, magazine articles on fly fishing, including publications like Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Tire, Fly Fishing, Fly Fishing and Time Journal, Warm Water Fly Fishing, Fly Tying, American Anglers, Salmon and Trout, Steel Hitter, Western Outdoors, Fly Fisherman, Fly Fusion, Midwest Fly Fishing and Hatches. So Skip's a, been a busy man throughout his life. His original patterns are tied and distributed by Solitude Fly Company in California, and their current catalog contains about 30 of Skip's patterns. So he is the instructor on six videos and has worked in radio and television as both a fly fishing host and celebrity guest. Skip, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Great to be back, Roger. Yeah, good to have you. It's, uh, as we were talking just before the show, this is the fifth show I've done with Skip, so be sure when you're done tonight to search our archive and look at the other shows that Skip and I have done together, So, and check those out. Lots of good information there. Well, good. Skip, we're talking about tying flies for beginners. There's a lot of people out there that fly fish, but don't tie flies for a number of reasons, but a lot of them are interested, and so hopefully we can kind of clear up some of the clouds and show people how they might get more involved in the fly fishing. But first off, how did you get started tying flies? Oh, you know, that's, I just, I probably started about somewhere around 10 or 11 or 12 when I started tying flies. And I just, I saw a kit, a fly tying kit that was kind of popular back then floating around. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, you can tie those at home yourself. You know, I just thought that was amazing. So I pestered my parents, and then for Christmas or my birthday, I got this kit, and it was, uh, to say it was awful would be very generous. It was, I mean, <laughs> the, the worst thing of all was the vise. Every time you tightened it, it loosened a little more, so you didn't tie very many flies before the hook was almost falling out of it. And I think I, my dad had a miniature bench vise downstairs, and I, I found that, and I started using that as my vise, as I recall, but I'm not sure if that's true, but that's what I kind of remember. Anyway, uh, it just was horrible, and the scissors wouldn't cut anything, and, you know, just a horrible little kit. But I loved it, and it had some rotten materials and lousy hooks. And I tied flies and uh, started ordering stuff on, not online, what was my, I was going to say online. This was back in the 60s, <laughs> but uh, I started ordering stuff through the mail from Herders, was the main company back then. And that's kind of how it went. I just, I started out with the worst of the worst stuff, and I still stuck with it because I loved it. And uh, still doing it. So you didn't have any kind of a mentor back then? It was all just trial and error, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the kit probably came with some horrid little instruction book that was scratched out, you know. But there were books on fly tying. There were some kind of remarkable ones. I mean, Bill Blades' book was really something for its day or really in some ways for any time. But on the other hand, most of the instruction was not real good. It was not thorough. They would tell you instructions for tying a fly, would tell you what I would say now about 15 to 25% of what you really needed to know. You had to just figure out the rest on your own. They'd say, 
tie this on the hook. You know, they didn't tell you to use the pinch. They didn't tell you whether to double yeah. over something over the thread and slide it down to the hook. They didn't tell you much of anything. They just said, do it. And so I did have that, and that was about all I had. I had my little kit, and I had some books that most of them weren't very helpful. And, uh, and then I just had lots of time because I was a kid, had lots of time on my hands and will to do it. And were you fly fishing before you started tying? No, it's the other way around. I, you know, we live out, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest out here on the west side. And I, let's see, how did that work? Yeah, I started tying before I started fishing flies because I was fishing before I started tying, but I wasn't fly fishing. And I would drag around a, <laughs> I would drag around a fly rod and put a spinning reel on it. And then I would spin fish and feel like at least I was sort of fly fishing. But I, I just kind of was afraid of it, to be honest with you, Roger. I felt like yeah. my trout wouldn't take the flies. You know, these weren't trout that would take flies because we weren't living in Montana or England. And I sort of felt like I'd bungle it or the flies, my flies weren't good enough or something like that. And then one day I caught a bunch of fish in a creek on my flies. And after that, boy, I was going nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting how everybody gets started. I've talked to other people, too, like that, you know, started tying before they actually started fly fishing. And I always found that kind of curious because I was the other, I kind of did it both at the same time. I, I, I was lucky to have a, a father that, not my father, but a, a neighborhood father that was uh, tying a couple of houses down the street from us. And he showed my friend and I how to tie flies. So we were fortunate enough to get a, a little leg up on that but yeah i remember oh, those yeah. days materials didn't weren't that easy to get locally or through the mail or and plus when you're a kid you can't really afford a whole lot you know what I, uh, at least sure I can. Did. Uh, yeah well, yeah so you know if anybody had a dead chicken or something you know right there <laughs> well herders you know, was a good source of you know i mean you could buy a dry fly grizzly hackle neck for like six bucks back then but right. you, and you got to take the value of a dollar into consideration. But honestly, they were pretty. Off, I mean, they were about worth what they paid for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't very good. It wasn't like today, you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. The, the quality is so incredible today. Um, yep. Thanks to you and know. So's the price. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true too. That's yeah. true too. Yeah, yeah. Find a six-dollar um, neck now. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Chuck in Placerville, and probably should get this out of the way right away because this is a question many people have. He says, often I question if I should buy flies or tie them. I get the satisfaction of catching fish on your own tie, but the economic question still pops into my head since tying your own can be quite costly with all the supplies needed and not quite sure it might be more expensive than buying them in small quantity. What are your thoughts on that? I'm pretty convinced that this is right, but anyway, it is my opinion, but it is possible to save money, considerable money on flies, if you were to limit yourself to only a small number of fly patterns or dressings, and then tie only those, and tie them in the sizes you need, and you could go a long way with just a few. I even wrote a book on, it's called Top 12 Nymphs for Trout Streams, and really those 12 nymphs will do so much. You might never need more. But on the other hand, the problem is nobody can stick with just tying the flies that they could just need. 
you look at a magazine or online or something, you see this cool fly, and you go, oh, I got to try try that, you know. And so now you're buying some more hooks, and you're buying some new thread of a different color, and you're buying some new materials, and then you tie that fly, and then you go, you know, I really don't fish for African tiger fish much. And so now you've got a fly you can't even use, and it costs you some money, and then that happens again and again. And even if it's flies you can and do use, there just are so many fly patterns out there. I mean, there are just thousands and thousands, tens of, probably hundreds of thousands, and you can tie new flies all the time, and it costs you money. So bottom line, no. I don't think I've ever met anybody who actually wound up saving money tying flies. But on the other hand, whatever you want, you can get. You don't have to wait till the fly shop picks it up or just hope that somebody has it online and chase it down. You know, you can tie a fly exactly the way you want it. You can tie, if you're on a trip, you can tie what you need, just bring your tying kit. And I mean, there are a lot of advantages, plus if you really enjoy fly tying, that's the reward in itself. But now nah, saving money, right. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody agrees with that. It's an art form, and kind of a functional art form, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. in that it catches fish. But I think more, most people do it to pass the time and to have it as a hobby and as an art form, and they enjoy doing it. And mm-hmm. For sure, it's, it's much easier to go buy them. But, but then again, and I agree with you, you'd probably take those 12 nymph flies and be, that's all you probably really need. Then every time you go to a new water, then you stop in the local shop, there's <laughs> five flies you've never heard of that are the hot ones that week, yeah. uh, and then you're off and running again on a whole new, you know, on buying flies. track of, yeah, flies that you need to tie or need to tie before you get there or need to buy or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I agree. Over the years, it's just, you know, that one more spool of thread, that one more piece of tinsel, that other yep. color cape you don't have, yep. <laughs> then all of a yep. sudden you have a whole room full of stuff, right? But um, it's true. We're gonna, I do. We're gonna, yeah, I do too. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, we're going to kind of dig into that because, like you said, I think if you're careful and starting out, you don't have to go spend a thousand dollars to get started tying flies. Oh no, pretty simply, no. yeah. So um, no. But anyway, let's. Ruben Amador in Colorado Springs, Colorado, wrote in and said, "Skip, first, thank you for what you've done for the sport for multiple generations of fly fishers." In your opinion, what is the biggest mental hurdle for fly tires to overcome when getting in the sport and then staying active at the bench? Do you believe there are challenges today tires have that you didn't face? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's at times in my life it's been almost religion. And so that's then that's no problem. All you want to do is sleep. And if you get hungry enough, you eat, but the rest of the time you're just tying flies. I've gone through three periods of a few years of doing that, and if you're like that, then there's no problem. But if you're not, if you don't feel like tying flies, you know, I honestly feel like don't do it. And if you do feel like it, if you enjoy it, then do it. And if you get out of it for a while and go back to it, I have no problem with that either. I just, because I'm one way about something doesn't mean everybody has to be my way. But I think maybe the main thing here is, to not discourage the new fly tire. And I think the way to do that is tie flies you can handle. Don't push yourself too hard. Work your way up to something that's complex and tricky. And the thing about it is, and and I'll tell you my rule, my one rule worth repeating, but this is my my one rule that is worth (laughs) anybody remembering. And that is how you fish a fly 
is at least as important as which fly you fish. And what I mean by that, I mean, I think it says it for itself, but put it in other words, somebody can have the just the ideal fly for the moment, and if they don't fish it well, it's useless. But if you have a passable fly and you fish it well, you can clean up sometimes on really smart trout. And this is because it's the presentation of the fly is so important. And we often think, well, I don't have the right fly. Well, maybe, but there's also a very good chance that you're not fishing the fly the way it needs to be fished, maybe not fishing it well enough, or maybe not fishing it at the right depth or with the right presentation that is dead drift or with twitches or something. It's a very good chance it's not the fly's fault, and that's why we can tie very simple flies, I mean really simple flies, and do really well on really smart trout and other fishes. That's simply because it's in the presentation more than anything else. And so I'm going to bring myself back to your original question and say, when you start out, tie good, proven, simple flies, and then you'll enjoy the tying of them. And if you fish them well, they will catch fish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of like on so many of my shows, I've done over 350 shows now, but it's, it's been mentioned so many times that certain flies are still some of the most popular flies, you know, like hare's ear or a pheasant tail or, you know, yeah. an Adams, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. they've been around since I, I can remember, and yet they're, you know, they're still very, very effective flies. And then, then again, some of the, the midges that we tie are so easy to tie. You can tie 50 of them in an hour, knock them off. So not everything is difficult either, right? But still very effective, those little midges. Right. Fish every day. Yeah. 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 Good flies don't really die off. I mean, there's out here in the Pacific Northwest, we have tons of trout lakes. I mean, they're just in every direction, it seems like. And so that's really the main thing here for fly fishers, along with steelhead. But because of that tradition, there's a fly that keeps coming back into the catalogs over and over, and it's called the. Well, it's got a bunch of names. It was originally called the Dredge or the Monkey-Faced Louise. <laughs> I don't know why they hmm. call it those disgusting names, but it's called the Kerry Special. It's been around since the 1920s. Oh, the Kerry Special, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, since the 1920s, and it's popular still. So, and because it catches fish. Yeah, yep, definitely. And it's a simple fly. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Sherman in Lexington, Kentucky says, do you feel many self-proclaimed experts try to make fly tying seem more difficult and complicated than it really is? I haven't run into that. Most of the people I know are nice people, and they want to make fly tying that are you know fly tying instructors, and they want to make it easy. They want to help people, bring people into it. I think if you're making it more difficult, if you're presenting it as being more difficult than it really is then you're doing it to raise yourself above others. And that's unfortunate, but that's something that human beings sometimes do. Fly tying, really, it's <laughs> it's kind of like music. I mean, I was a professional musician for decades and a teacher of music, and I even wrote a column in a jazz guitar magazine for about 15 years. But one thing I found is that the guitar can be as simple or as complex as you want to make it. You can take some mode and you can find... 25 different ways to stretch it out and, and mix it up and get all this material to improvise with and, and do it with different rhythms. Or you can sit down and learn a bunch of open string chords, maybe 10 of them, and play a bunch of songs, and it sounds really good. So I think fly tying is kind of like that. There's some simple flies that are 
as you know, I've kind of talked about this, but they're easy to tie and they're effective. But if you want to get into really complicated stuff, you know, like presentation flies, trying to tie flared hair bass bugs or any flared hair fly, really, Atlantic salmon flies, I mean, the list goes on. You can get into some stuff that's really high level, extremely challenging. There's a huge range in flight time. But bottom line is, I hope not too many people are trying to make it more intimidating than it needs to be because you can get started and you can tie flies that will catch fish. If you have good instruction, you can do it. Almost anybody can do it and not have to sweat. And I think some things have become easier over time. For instance, some of the more modern materials are easy to work with. Or, like, you know, you, you really hardly ever see uh, the quill wing flies anymore. They're done with poly and things like that and hair and uh, parachutes. And, and I remember struggling with those as a kid. They were just hard to tie, you know, those quills. They're tricky. Get them to match and do all that. But do you, sell, do you tie any quill patterns anymore for yourself? Or is that something you've gone past as well? Or do you still find a use I tie them more for pleasure than for fishing. I mean, I do still yeah. fish them once in a while, especially for fish that are kind of well, I shouldn't say because those quill wings look great, but they're not necessary. I really don't think they're necessary because I've got too many super cautious, super cagey trout on wings that were kind of impressionistic. But right. uh, quill yeah. wings are beautiful, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're fun to tie, and they're, they're beautiful, and they certainly fish, but you don't need them. So, yeah, that's true, yeah. I mean, because you're right, Roger. There were a lot of like, quill wings... Lemon wood duck wings are even trickier, I think, to try to get those flat and even and all that. They're really tricky, but you don't need to tie those. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I think it's gotten easier. And I'll tell you what's gotten – the big thing for me was when the bobbin came along. Because I, when I first started tying, I don't know if there were bobbins, but I didn't know about them, and they sure didn't come in that horrible little kit I got. And I didn't have bobbins, so I had to always put pressure on the thread somehow, and I'd – hold it in my, between my teeth or in one hand while I worked with the other hand, and, oh, bobbins, oh, oh my God, bobbins were a lifesaver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know, you know, I've talked to people that learned how to tie without bobbins and without a vice, you know, mm-hmm. that can, you know, I mean, hand tie it in their hands, which I think is incredible. There's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah, I've done some well, of that for exhibition, and it's tricky, but the main thing I don't like about tying holding the hook in my hand is that my hand starts to cramp up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the older you get, the harder everything becomes with your hands. So yep. <laughs> good to have something this else. This I understand, holding. yes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> me too. Okay, let's see here. Let's start talking about some of the tools because there are a few, well, we just talked about not having any tools and being able to tie a fly, but, but in general, there's a few that we just kind of absolutely have to have almost. And let's start out talking about a few of those. So why don't you get us going there, Skip? Okay. Well, that's a good lead-in because I happen to have the book that just was reissued that we're talking about basically tonight, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. And in that, I actually have a list of, I'm trying to remember what I called it. It's been a little while since I wrote it. It's been through (laughs) 20-odd printings. So let's see. Essential tools. You need a fly tying vise. You really do. You need hackle pliers. You need a hackle gauge, especially if you're going to tie dry flies. You need the godsend, the best thing since the wheel, or possibly better than the wheel, the bobbin, 
You need a couple of those at least to start with. You need good light, light over your fly that lights it up well enough that you can really see what you're doing. Hair stacker is a good idea. You don't necessarily have to have it, but sooner or later you will need it. And scissors, you need really good scissors. And then there's some other things you can get, but those are the, I would say uh, those, you know, the book says those are the, the essential tools, and then after that it lists optional tools, and I would say that's about right. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this, you know, as I was preparing these questions and putting them together and so forth. And it kind of depends on what you're, you're going to be fishing for, too, right? I mean, you, if we're going to right. talk trout, then, and if you want to start out with simple things and just tying, for instance, nymphs, then you don't really need a hackle gauge, right? And you don't need a hair stacker. And you can tie a lot of flies with just device pliers, scissors, and a bobbin, right? I mean... Yeah, if you were going to limit yourself strictly to nymphs, there are nymphs where, for which a uh, hackle gauge is handy, but yeah, you could go a long way without the hackle gauge, for example, although it's only about a 5 to $10 <laughs> investment. I mean, for a, you know, yeah. as good a one as they make, but right. yeah, you can, yeah. You can eliminate <laughs> a couple of those tools. To it, right, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So yeah, yeah that's but, true. This that was kind of a general list. That, I mean, you're going to use all those tools unless you really limit yourself. You're going to use right, all those right. tools, I think. But you're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just to get started and say, well, am I going to like this or not? But really, the most expensive piece right there is the vice, right? Yep. Yeah. It is. And you have to have it. Yeah. Yeah. What features do you look for in a vice? Would you tell somebody starting out, what do they need? Because vices look kind of, I mean, they run the gamut, right? They sure do. Well, you know, price doesn't necessarily mean quality. I've figured that out. <laughs> I guess a lot of us have. But you do want a good vice. And if you get a good vice, it'll last you probably your whole lifetime pretty easily. So it's a one-time investment, and compared with a lot of sports and hobbies, it's a pretty cheap one. But anyway, what I look for in a vise, first of all, the most important thing is that it holds the hook securely. That's number one. If it doesn't hold the hook securely, then nothing else really matters. But I do like a vise that I can rotate. It doesn't have to be the kind that rotates on a horizontal plane, but I just want to be able to turn that fly a little bit now and then and make adjustments, and occasionally I might even turn the fly upside down to do something to the underside of the fly. And if the fly vice is angled up, then I like a vice whose head will drop. So I can both turn the vice, it's, it's rotary, I can turn the fly, and then I can also raise and lower, or rather another way to put it would be change the angle of the vice head. So it's tilted up more, level or down. And that those are the features I look for mainly. I mean, otherwise, I just want the vice also to be stable. I usually use a pedestal vice anymore. I used to use a C-clamp vice. The C-clamp is more secure, but you're limited in where you can put it. And if you travel, it's really can be a problem because some benches won't take a C-clamp. So I've gone pretty much with the pedestal vise, but, you know, I just want that pedestal to be firm enough that the vise isn't going to be rocking on me. And I guess that's about it. I also like a vise that gives me good access to the hook, which means that the jaws aren't too bulky. And I want a vise that 
holds a fairly wide range of hooks so that so that if I go to a small hook, I don't have a problem, or if I go to a large hook. And there are limits to most vices, and that that's just reality. But like the vice I use, and I should say, I always like to say this because I don't want, I feel it's a little dishonest not to say that I am with the pro staff of HMH. <laughs> but my okay. HMH vices, which is what I mostly use, has all those features, and it's not really expensive, and I've never had one lick of trouble with it, and what was I going to say about it? You know, I had a point to make about that particular vice. Oh, yeah, it, now I'm, I'm back where I started. Uh, it comes with different jaws, so you can slip the jaws out, replace it with finer jaws for tying real small, and then you can replace, there. I think there are three sets of jaws, so you can go from really large hooks to really tiny ones. But I haven't, mm -hmm. yeah. I haven't actually had to use those because I do fine with just the standard ones. Yeah, yeah. Again, it depends on what you're tying for, right? If you're not tying huge, big salt flies, you know, then you don't need huge jaws. But those that standard set covers a, a lot of sizes, I've found, too. Yeah. yeah. What do you think and you need to pay? pay to, yeah. What do you think you need to pay to get a decent vice? I mean, price You range. know, that's a good question, and I would have to research it because for two reasons. I haven't had to buy a vice for a long, long time. Yeah. And the other reason is because of because this pro thing, plus a vice lasts a lifetime, as I was saying. I've got quite a few of them around at this point. But the other reason is that money's been, the inflation rate has been crazy lately, so that makes it That's even harder for me too. to predict. Yeah. But, yeah, but you can get a vice in the, I'll call it the middle range of expense normally, that is going to be really good. And if you end up feeling like you didn't get quite what you wanted, which often happens when, because you don't know what your tastes are when you begin, but you can just get a good all-around vice, and then you can use that as your backup vice or your travel vice. I don't want to bring my very best vice on a traveling because it could always get lost or stolen. So I mm -hmm. I don't bring my very best, but I bring a just a good solid one. So you yeah, get, to get a good solid one, and then later on, if you have preferences that draw you to another one, no problem. You've got a backup and a travel vice. Yeah, yeah. I've just, you know, just typed in fly tying vice on Amazon, and you've got everything from, oh, about, well, there's even one for $43. But starting out at 43 and then you get up into the more name brand ones, and now you're up into the 170 to 40 another 180 to $70. Some of the better known, Regal, Peak, Renzetti, then you start getting up over in the two to three hundred dollar range, but uh, but you can also pay up to what six six seven hundred bucks for a vice too if you want. But I probably that. in that probably in that two hundred dollar range, you probably get something pretty decent nowadays too. Yeah, that sounds so, about right. Maybe even a little bit less, you know. Yeah. But I would do yeah. a little research. I would, you know, these days it's so easy to do that because you can look at reviews. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm also looking at one here for 1979. I wouldn't buy that one. <laughs> That's the one that won't hold your hook, like the one you started out with, you know. I mean, I, <laughs> well, they made a lot I better ones in 79 than they did in, when did I get that kit? Mid-60s? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the like you said, too, it's... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, uh, you know, back... When I was young, the vice that everybody had was the Thompson A. Yeah, 
That's what I, yeah, that was the second vice I got because I, I bought one of these 1979 ones, <laughs> and it didn't work very good. <laughs> but, yeah, that Thompson was like the go-to, wasn't it, back then? Yeah. And it wasn't oh, it that was. expensive. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, even so, for the um, time, it wasn't that expensive. And it was right, a good vice, right. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, too. Yeah, HMH here, 200 bucks that you had mentioned, a good company as well. Yeah, there's a lot of them out there. I think, tell me if I'm missing anything, but HMH, Renzetti, Regal. I'm just looking down the list here, too. I've got all three um, of them. Yeah. I mean, those are all well-known companies. Yes. Just seeing if there's anything else here that I'm missing. Those have all been around uh, since the 80s at least. So they are well established. Peak, peak, peak is another. Yeah, that's one, one I've never tried there. on. I don't know about that. Yeah. I've heard uh, of it. So anyway, that's kind of the, the range you, you know people should be looking in. Let me uh, take a quick break here, Skip. Uh, I kind of ran over time, long over time. Oh. So let me take a quick break, and I'll be right back, and we'll dig back into this. So okay. much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, their proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for muskie, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity. So they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. Again, that's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Skip Morris about fly tying made clear and simple. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll, we'll try to get it answered here tonight. Okay, we got vices kind of out of the way. You talked about bobbins being so important. Tell us a bit about what's available out there in bobbins that you like. I mean, there's the very simple kind of uh, springy load ones, and then there's some more complex ones as well. Yeah, I just use the conventional bobbin. They're pretty much like the ones I first used. Now, I'm not saying that the, the ones that tighten and do all that aren't just as good. But uh, or maybe they have advantages that I don't appreciate. But I've just always I've got a lot of bobbins, and I uh, I get well. I better do another confession. I'm on the pro staff of uh, Doctor Slick, and they make all these flight tying tools. But that's where I get my bobbins, and bobbins are lifesavers. They come tight, usually too tight. I mean, not just theirs, but everybody's. I guess I think it's so that if you like a really tight bobbin and you're going to use heavy thread. You're set, and then you can lighten them from there. But if you want to lighten the, lo the tension on your bobbin, don't try to just bend out the arms because they're usually – I ruined a bobbin doing this years ago, not a Dr. Slick, but I tried to bend them out, and I found out that that's a way to break the arms off the tube because they're usually welded onto the tube. So what you have to do is go in with two just conventional pairs of pliers and bend only the arms. Just bend them out a little bit. Try the bobbin. Bend them out a little bit. And what you want is you want the bobbin to have to really hold the thread firmly. You don't want it to be slipping. 
but you don't want it so tight that it's, you know, threatening to break your thread all the time. I was fine with a new bobbin. I have to make that adjustment. Otherwise, I just, all I look for in a bobbin is I like some kind of protector. What am I trying to say? Some kind of surface for the thread that isn't likely to get nicked. For example, I have bobbins that have special inserts that are made out of various things, such as, and, you know, glass is just so hard and so smooth that it's not going to fray the thread. But I'm not crazy about metal tube bobbins that don't have an insert because once you scratch that tube, it's just going to keep cutting your thread. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the, some of them come with that ceramic lining in the tube, right? Yeah. Is that what you're yeah, there's Talking ceramic, about? there's yeah, glass, that, that, there's, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's some other kinds. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's it's one of those things that they do come in different sizes for different size flies, right? You know, I think they have midge bobbins. They do, and, and, and to be honest with you, one thing stuff. I've never figured out, they make, yeah, they make bobbins for small flies, and then they make the tube smaller. But nobody gets in close enough that a smaller tube matters in the least. So it's easier to thread a wider mouth bobbin, a wider tubed bobbin, than it is a fine one. So I just, I've always used really wide tubed bobbins if I can get them. I used to use what they call a floss bobbin instead of a conventional bobbin because oh. they're really wide. And I've known a lot of great fly tires, and I've never seen any of them getting so close that they needed a a narrower tube. <laughs> and if, and even if you yeah. do, it doesn't matter because the side of the bobbin that's next to the hook is always the same distance no matter what size the tube is. Yeah, yeah. A couple of the other things in your optional tools that you have in the book here, I don't know, I, I learned with a whip finisher when I was a kid, and I still use a whip finisher, but a lot of people do that by hand, so I guess you could get by without that. What other optional tools would you think one would need? Well, let's see. I'm going to pull out clear and simple again, if I can get this cat out of my lap. No, she's not going anywhere. Okay, here, I got the book. <laughs> okay, stay there. Take, retake my position. And I'm going to take a look at the list here. Oh, that's not it. <laughs> So, yeah, as far as the whip finisher, I'll, I'll say something. Commercial tires never use one because it's one more tool to slow them down. And mm. I was a commercial okay. tire for a few years, so I picked up that habit of just using my fingers to make whip finishes. But, you know, if you like, if you like using a whip finisher, no problem. Absolutely, that's just fine. But because of, I guess, because of the way I brought, was brought up with flight tying, I think there were, I don't think whip finishers came along until after I'd tied for quite a long time. I just don't think of as a required tool. But one tool that I think is required that we don't, that I didn't have in the book is required, but it really is, is a set of pliers with smooth, flat jaws for bending down the barbs of your hooks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and a bodkin really nowadays, I would say, is a required tool. I mean, it, it's just so handy for so many things. Material right. holder, yeah. I do like to have a material holder. It just, it, for those of you who haven't tied, it fits on your vise, and you just, materials that string out, you just put them in the material holder, and they're out of your way. And yeah. I like to have a pair of fingernail clippers. They cost normally under a dollar, <laughs> not much of an investment. And you can uh, actually use old scissors if you have real 
your first scissors turn out to be pretty crappy ones. But this is for cutting hard things so you don't damage your good scissors. When you buy a pair of scissors for fly tying, what you're buying is that the very tips of the scissors, once those are, once you ruin those, you've ruined a whole set, the whole scissor or pair of scissors. So you have to be very careful and treat those with respect. And so you don't cut things like wire with those. That's where you use the fingernail clippers of the old scissors. And I think for most of us, magnifiers of some kind can be a, a real huge help, especially now. I'm almost 71, so <laughs> I've got pretty old eyes. You know, they're the age that I am. And magnification really helps. And I just use your standard reading glasses. And then for precision tying, for collectors and so forth, I will use, I always have, I will use the uh, reading glasses and what they call a binocular magnifier or binocular magnifiers. I'm not sure which. It's that jeweler's thing that fits with a band around your head and then you have a, a hood that goes down with lenses. And you can use those mm -hmm. in conjunction with the reading glasses, they go right over them, and then you're really looking close. You can see, it's amazing yeah. what you can see. And so yeah. the whip finisher, yeah. as you say, and, and hair stacker is good, and hair packer or compressor, if you're going to flare hair as you would for a bass bug or for a number of trout flies, oh, man, that's a lifesaver. You're going to save wear and tear on your thumb and finger because you can compress the hair back each time with it. And... Uh, for bobbin threader, you know, we used to buy those, but I often buy just floss threaders now. They won't scratch your bobbin. They're just a little piece of monofilament. And then whip finishers, you said, a lot of people oh, like those. Oh, you mean those. floss, like and dental floss threaders is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those are great. Yeah. And for flaring hair and packing it, I really like a half-hitch tool. Every once in a while, that is a really handy thing to have. It's just a way to slip a half-hitch hit, half onto the shank of the hook without catching materials that are sticking out. So mm -hmm. I have all those things, and I use them. Yeah. If you were, where would you put your money in tools? I mean, would if you're going to pay a little extra to get something of higher quality, would it would it be in the vise? Would it be in the scissors? Would it be in the bobbin? I mean, if you have your choice to, to spend a little bit more, where would you put your money? Well, you just named it. Uh, vice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's number one. Yeah, you named it an order, I think. The same order, at least, that I would. Scissors, number two. Yeah, I've worked with horrible scissors, especially when I was young, and they just make tying about four times harder than it needs to be. They're, good scissors aren't really that expensive, and they last, if you take care of them, they last a long time. I mean, decades. I have now a really good vise and really good scissors, and the other would be a good bobbin. And I am surprised. I've seen some inexpensive bobbins that worked surprisingly well, but I still want to have a really good bobbin that is, there's not going to be a risk that it's going to scratch my thread, and I guess that's really the main thing, that it's going to wear on my thread, because you're, you're spinning that bobbin around, and that thread is rotating under tension around the mouth of the bobbin, and if there's any kind of imperfection there, it's just going to keep cutting that thread and driving you nuts. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah that, it does drive you nuts. You know, you're just about finished with the fly, and then that thread breaks, and then and the whole thing comes apart. <laughs> it's uh, yes. it's really aggravating. I've been there. We've all been there, I guess. You know. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the other let's one. Let's talk about. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I cut you off. Go ahead. No. Okay. No, you go ahead. You were going to. <laughs> um, I was going to change topics. So go ahead. 
Oh, well, then good. I'm glad I caught you because I was going to say a, a tool I use a lot is conventional hackle pliers. And by that, I mean the old English style. They have this loop in the end. They're looped wire. I use them about half the time maybe for hackle. But the other half of the time, I use them for things I can't even think of right now. But some of them are to gather certain materials together, and I'll clamp them. One reason I use them a lot is when I break my thread, the first thing I do is grab that loose end so it doesn't start unraveling, and then I hang my English hackle pliers from the thread, and their weight is enough that the thread can't slip, and then I just restart my thread. Okay, okay. And when you say English hackle pliers, uh, the ones with the two little... With, with no pads on them or with pads or, or what do you? Um, I still like the old just metal jaws, although the pads work fine. They really do, and, and they probably have some advantage, but when I get a new pair, I squeeze them in pliers so I get the tension right, and then I, I open them up and I sand them with real fine sandpaper around the edges of the jaws just to make sure there's no flange on there that might cut things. And that's mm -hmm. the kind, yeah, just they're all metal, and they have that... Um, spring-looking curl in the end. Mm -hmm. That's the ones. Mm -hmm. Those are the yep. ones. Yep. Okay, let's talk about materials. Mark Power in Halifax, Nova Scotia, wrote in and asked, what advice can you give new fly tires getting started with high prices for hooks, hackle, and materials? Oh, how to, how to negotiate <laughs> your spending? Yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, well, that's tricky. I mean, I'll say this, what I kind of said before is that this is a, fly tying and fly fishing, I think, are relatively cheap sports when you compare them with snow skiing and, you know, a lot of other things, uh, golf. Now, I'm not sure about that because I don't snow ski and I don't play golf, but I suspect I every impression that that's true, even hunting, actually. So don't be too worried about it. And a lot of things that you buy, you know, you buy a hackle neck, a neck of, dry fly hackles, for example, or any kind of hackle neck, it'll last you a long, long time. But just, you take hackle necks, you don't want anything too cheap because hackle really has to be good to, to, to do its job and to tie well and to do its job in the fly. Say you buy a dry fly hackle, that's your most expensive, and you're going to decide to buy a neck rather than a saddle patch. Usually I go for the middle. I find that's where I get the best bargain best quality or best use of my dollar is to buy the number two or the second neck in the three qualities. They usually have three different qualities, and that's the one that usually seems to be the best. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be too worried because, like, as I say, when a lot of things are really cheap, such as rabbit dubbing, that you can buy a lot of rabbit dubbing. I mean, it'll last for a lot of flies at least. Very cheap, a couple bucks, something like that, maybe four at the most. I doubt it's even that much. It'll last you a long time. And a hackle neck, yeah, it's going to set you back. It's going to be 80 bucks or maybe even more, but it'll tie a lot of flies if it's a good neck, and you'll enjoy tying with it. That's about all I can tell them. Mm -hmm. There are things you can buy that are exotic. Just watch out for those because you may not use them very often, and they can be real expensive. I can't think of an example yeah. offhand, but, well, jungle cock. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff. That was. That stuff's like buying another car. So yeah, yeah. Nowadays, I, I wouldn't, you know, yeah. if I had a, if I were tying a streamer, I wouldn't run out and buy a jungle cock cape for that one streamer and then decide that I really didn't want to fish or tie streamers. And I got to, I don't know how much they cost now, but I'd search out some kind of substitute. And there are a number of ways to substitute for that. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. I think we have a. Yeah, I think we had.
No, we had a question about that. Maybe we'll come to it. What about hooks? I mean, we've got all different brands of hooks. What are we looking for there in quality, and is there really that much difference in pricing between the different hook manufacturers? Well, there is some difference in price, and you've got to be a little careful. There are brand names that you can trust. Now, I, I'm going to give full, uh, what do you call it, full, not exposure, that would be too much like nudity. What am I thinking of? Um, well, I just want to be upfront about this. I can't remember what that's called, but there's a common term for it. But just Disclosure, I'm, you were I'm saying. Pardon me? You were full disclosure. Sorry, which yeah. Disclosure. You can't hear me? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Disclosure. Right. Right. Full disclosure, not full nudity. So I'm <laughs> I'm with I'm on the pro staff of Daiichi. So I those are the hooks that I know best, and they make some great hooks. Uh, my experience has been because I've tried a lot of different brands of hooks that the hook companies make some hooks that I don't care for too much, and some that I really like. And so I could give specific brands for Daiichi, but it would be difficult with other companies because hook models do come and go, not very quickly, but they do come and go. And the Daiichis are the ones I know best. So I guess the simple answer is, I mean, I could give the models and hooks, well, the models that I use, but they would be Daiichi. And so I'll do that if you want. But I guess the bottom line is hooks... You, you know, like we live about, it takes us about three days in our kind of lazy, easy way of getting there to get to Montana. And then once we're there, we want to spend a week and a half at least fishing there because it took us three days to get there, and it'll take us three days to get back. And so we don't, I don't want to mess up all that travel and all that fishing and all that effort by having a lousy hook because you buy a cheap hook that's poor, and it's not going to hook fish. It's not going to hold fish. I mean, those, that's the thing that connects you to the fish. And so I think buying good hooks is really important. And to me, not only buying good quality hooks from a good company, and there are more than one good company out there than Daiichi. There's certainly Tamco, and I'm trying to think of some other ones, but Daiichi, I guess, is gone now. So anyway, there are others. But my point is, yeah, get good hooks. It's just a it's ridiculous not to get really good hooks. And then what I was going to say is make some effort to find the models of hooks that you really like. And so I have my Daiichi models that I really trust, and I stick with those. And I'll experiment with other hooks if they look promising, but I'm really quick to go back to the ones I trust because, as I say, you can go to a very reputable company, and you will find that some of the hooks you love and some of them you don't really work for you. Yeah, yeah. And there are, um, you know, the, the problem becomes, as, as I've found, is you read about a pattern in a book, you know, or online or whatever, and they're using a Daiichi, whatever, you know, whatever the model number is. And then you go, well, I don't have any of those. <laughs> so, but there are right. plenty, of, yeah, plenty of replacements out there that, and charts that will tell you, well, the Daiichi is equal to a Tiemco whatever. And so a lot of times you don't have to buy that specific hook if there's a model that's similar, right? Exactly. And that's why when I give, when I do a book or magazine article or something and I give the hook, I usually don't give the brand. A lot of times now what I do is I, I give the brand and model at the end, but before that I give the specifications and I really think that all fly tying instructions to do this so that you look 
at the what it's in the pattern in the dressing where it says hook and it says light wire two x long slow curve shank that kind of stuff so i go then you can go oh and you look around and you can look online or in the catalogs and you go oh okay but then it's also if they give you only a hook model and they say the something or other 25 22 what you can do is you may already have a hook that will substitute for that just perfectly it'd be just as good as the hook they recommend you look up what the specifications are for that hook how long is the shank how heavy is the wire is there anything else about it like does it have a straight eye a ring eye and then you just check your hooks and you see find one that's got the same specifications and you don't have to go out and buy yet another box of hooks so yes exactly what right. you said roger yeah yeah charles rogers in south carolina as well as Phil McCartney wrote in here on line live. Several of them are asking about threads. So let's talk about threads for the next couple of minutes. You know, what Charles was saying, what's your go-to thread material? Is there a specific brand or type of thread that you like? Weight? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so let's go on to the next question. <laughs> full, full disclosure. I'm being a smart aleck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, most of my trout my uh, trout tying I do with uh with Unithread, ADOT Unithread for small trout flies and slightly large ones I will use ADOT Unithread. And then what I really used to love, which is funny because it's very different from Unithread. Unithread is a real tight weave and this is a real loose weave. I used to love Danville thread, 3 aught and I would go between those two. So for big flies, Danville 3-aught. But it's hard to get the Danville 3-aught anymore. You can, I would tend to go to the Unithread in 6-aught, in which is actually quite a leap from 8-aught. You can go to 3-aught, but that's getting pretty heavy. 6-aught or 3-aught for the bigger flies. And then for really big flies, I'll use all kinds of stuff like flat wax nylon. I mean, really heavy threads. But most of my tying is trout. Well, trout and bass. I guess bass and panfish, but trout and bass. And so I use Unithread, and then I do like, now, there's a thread called Vivas. It's kind of expensive, and it's a little looser weave than I like for trout thread. I like the tighter weave that's got some real texture to it. But this Vivas is really nice, and it's for some people it's probably perfect because that's a real personal thing. It's kind of like, I mean, <laughs> thread is a little like, what you order at a restaurant you know some people are going to order a pizza and some people are going to order soup but this thread is kind of the same and the vivas is so strong it's really i don't know how much stronger it is than most other threads but man is it strong and i really like it for that i guess that's about it for me that's that's kind of my perspective yeah, one of the things i learned is it's kind of like hooks like how you're describing hooks somebody says well i'm tying with you know uni six thought or whatever and you you should ask yourself well, why are they using that uh is it mm -hmm. the size of the fly is it how it wraps and you know i started going out and looking at some of those videos and you know like some of the threads will wrap flat and others will wrap as a rope to be quite simple right and yeah. and that creates a whole different effect on your body mm -hmm. sometimes you know you have to ask yourself well why why are they using that thread is it just because they like divas or you know or uni or whatever but a lot of, sometimes it is functional what i found 
And there are, again, I think yeah, some charts out there. If you Google that stuff, you'll see charts where it'll say the strength for Uni versus Danville versus Beaton. And uh, you can kind of sort that stuff out, too. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, we have the two systems now, the AUT, which has been around for a long time, and then the newer one, at least in flight tying, I guess it's it was used in some kind of industry, but denier. And I admit denier, that I'm yeah. still not used to denier. Yeah, but I'm used to the AUT system, but, you know. Yeah, that is no confusing, you know. Yeah. I know, it just yeah. now you've got two different systems to try to negotiate. Now, I'm looking at a, at some Danville right now, and it says, well, darn Oh, no, it says, yeah, it says 6 aught. I wish it were 3 aught, But it says 6 aught, and then it says 70 denier. So uh, I like that when they do that, because then whichever system you're used to, you can, you know, you can find yeah. it on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me do a quick break here, Skip, and we'll come right back and uh, dig some more sure. into, uh, into fly tying. So hang tight. Sure. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking to Skip Morris about fly tying made clear and simple. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage and type in your question, send it in. We'll see if we can get it answered. We do have a, we talked about resources for learning. Well, we haven't really talked about resources for learning fly tying, but as you and I did, we was kind of back in the trial and error days, and there were a few books. But nowadays, there are so many resources to learn how to tie flies. True. Uh, and do you have any thoughts about that and where you can direct people to go? Well, you know, for a beginning fly tire, I still think, personally, that a book is probably the best way to go. And, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> disclaimer again, I've written a lot of fly tying books, so, and the one we're talking about mainly tonight, a beginner's book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. But my sense is that that's probably the best way to go because everything is organized. It's not bits and pieces. The Internet and YouTube can be great for some things, but it doesn't seem like this, that's the best way to go. And a fly tying book isn't going to cost you a lot. There are other beginner's fly tying books than mine that, are, that I feel are good, so I'm not saying mine's the last word, but... Whatever you get, I think that's the way to go, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think in you, as, as well as some of the other tires that have produced beginning books, you know, there's a strategy behind that. And one is learning how to tie the basic and do, using the basic tying methods. Because once you use one method, then you might be able to use that method for, for that technique for 100 different flies once you learn that oh, one yeah. thing, right? Yeah, and then oh, likewise, yeah. you add another technique, and then another technique. Before long, you have mm -hmm. 10, 15 techniques. Now you're able to tie almost anything until you go to something like bass bugs, which is a whole other learning curve. But, but I think that's the way most of the books are organized. With that thought in mind, is to step you into it rather than land you right in the middle of something complex, which could be oh, a yeah. disaster. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, well, clear and simple, I, I took that from the simplest fly I could find, practically. It's just two different colors of dubbing on a hook. Right. So you learn to dub, mm -hmm. and you learn a whole yeah. bunch of things, the basic moves. And then with the next fly, you learn the pinch, which is a great technique, and it, it allows you to get a soft material bound on the hook without it sliding all around the hook. And then you're going to use the dubbing technique and pinch technique. You're going to use it for more for an unbelievable number of flies. And, and you just, that's the way I think a flight tank book should be. It should sort of extreme, as simple as possible, take you very gently by the hand and work you through as few techniques as possible on the first fly and then add one or two on each fly and make sure, you know, pick the flies that are going to give you the techniques that really apply to more situations than any other techniques so that they're really mm -hmm. universal and ones that you really need. And, yeah, pretty much what you just yeah. said, Roger. <laughs> yeah. We've got some questions that people took the time to write in here about specific challenges, and I want to try to hit those before we run out of time. Okay. Skip. One is Ron McNeil in Washington. He says, what materials have given you the most trouble mastering as you've perfected your tying expertise? That's funny because I saw that, and I'm pretty sure I know Ron McNeil a little bit. <laughs> From clear back when I, he lives around here now, and I first met him when I spoke at a show in Michigan the first time, and he was living there and was one of the guys that put together the show. So oh, I bet okay. you it's that Ron McNeil. But anyway, well, you know, I was thinking about that, and the techniques that have challenged me the most are the ones that I have, I'll say, gone to war with. <laughs> you know, we were talking about the light Cahill and, you know, those traditional dry flies. The light Cahill has those wood duck wings that are so challenging. I just literally, well, depends on how you define it, but I went to war with the light Cahill, and for months, if not a year, I tied light Cahills several a day, just trying to find ways to make those wings a little flatter, a little more even, to get every to get the, the density right and everything. And it was, man, it was a monster because I was trying new experiments all the time, all the time. And so I would say that the wood deck wings were one of the biggest challenges, but that's mainly because of the high, very high goal that I set for myself of making them as close to perfect as I personally could. So mm -hmm. I made that challenge into one of my greater challenges. And I've, there have been others like that, spinning, uh, not really so much spinning, but flaring different colors of deer hair for some trout flies and a lot of bass flies. I've spent a long time working at that for hours every day, trying, again, lots of experiments, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I made them into the most challenging. As far as when I was starting out, I think I would say the most challenging for me was the parachute hackle. And I really liked the parachute hackle the first time I saw it because it made so much sense. The, the fibers radiate out from the center of the fly just the way that the legs of an insect do, but they were so time-consuming and awkward to tie. And so there's another case where I went to war with parachute hackles. It took me months, and I came up with a way that was quick and efficient and very neat and very strong, stronger than the other methods that I had seen. And that was before I wrote Clear and Simple, so it's in that book. But, yeah, I would if I just picked one at random that I would say was really a big challenge, it would be the parachute hackle, dry fly parachute right. hackle. Okay. Um, Robert uh, 
Konowich in Pennsylvania, he says, I, he struggles with egg flies. He says, I know it's simple. Any help would be great. Any tips you can give him on egg flies? Yeah. The thing is, the egg fly I've always relied on, I mean, I've tied others and I've fished others, but I really kind of rely on the old glow bug. And it's really a very simple fly, but it's a little tricky to tie. And I've actually got, let's see, I think two different books that have instructions for tying the glow bug. But what I do is, first of all, make a solid base with a thread, get a tight base of thread on there. Then bind that glow bug yarn on with a very, as narrow as you can make it, a narrow collar with plenty of very tight thread turns, but keep the turns together so they don't spread out. And so now you're getting pretty far along. Now when you pull the, the ends of the yarn back to advance the thread, make sure you keep the thread tight. You want everything tight. And then also you want to make sure, let's say that you have, that you're using, it's a fairly big one and you're using two sections of yarn on top, two on the bottom. Make sure the two on top stay on top. You don't want them tipped at an angle so that they're kind of blending together. You want the yarn separate. And then when you go to cut the yarn, some people cut the top ones first and the bottom ones second. Some people are really good at that. Like a friend of mine who used to tie tough flies eight hours a day commercially. In fact, I've done that myself. I was a commercial tire for a while. You get really good at a few flies. I mean, you get amazingly good because you tie hundreds of dozens of them. But I like to pull all the yarn up at the same time, twist it a little bit. That's a trick my friend, the commercial tire, taught me. And then I get in with my scissors, I take a moment just to prepare, and I get deep enough in the blades that I know the scissors aren't going to have a problem, and then I make one clean, quick snip. And if you don't make it quick and clean, then you got problems. And that's pretty much it. Okay, good, good, good tips. Mike A. in Rockville, Maryland, he says, I've noticed, depending on stream depth and flow, some fishing folks use weighted woolly boogers. And others do not add weight, either with lead wire, where it's allowed, or with cones in many colors. He just says, please comment. Do you fish woolly boogers weighted and unweighted, and, and how do you do it? You know, honestly, I not to disparage the woolly bugger, it's a good fly. People catch a lot of fish on it. I have certainly caught fish on it. But I don't fish it a lot because it's... It's kind of a little bit like a lot of things, but not a lot like anything. <laughs> it's kind of like uh -huh. a leech with legs. And nature has not figured out how to make a leech with legs. So it's kind of a peculiar fly, but it can be made to look like a lot of things. I mean, it's a real general purpose, effective fly. So I'm not disparaging it. I'm just saying I don't fish it a lot. There are other flies I'll fish instead. In fact, I even, this is interesting that, you, that this comes up because I once wrote an article for a uh, magazine called The Only Fly in the World, and it was about how there really are other flies than the woolly bugger out there. Because <laughs> I know people who, I've met people who just about fish only the woolly bugger. So having said all mm -hmm. that, I will now get to the subject at hand, which is really not just about the woolly bugger as far as weight, but it's about sinking flies in general with regards to weight. And yeah, here again, this is one of the advantages of tying flies. If you want a woolly bugger that's really heavy, you can put lead substitute wire in the center and then put a, a heavy, maybe even a tungsten cone on the head, and that thing's going to sink. It's, it's just going to go right for the bottom. You might as well throw an anvil in there. And then you can make it completely unweighted, which is a real good way to do it if you're fishing it behind a sinking line in a lake, for example or you can weight it any way you want it. But I guess the simple answer is I simply weight flies as much as I need. And I know that sounds kind of like a 
poor answer, but I don't know how else to answer it. I try to have a range, and I'll do little things. I've done little things like use a particular color thread, so I have just a little band I can check to see how heavy it is. Black will be the heaviest, red will be the next, and you know, you can uh-huh. you can do different things like that to because sometimes it's hard to tell how heavy a fly is. But a lot of times you can just take it in your palm, flip it up in the air, and catch it a couple times, and you know, then yeah. you know whether yeah. it's really heavy or light or. Throw it in the water. But, yeah, I don't have a simple answer for that. It, it thinks, you know. Yeah, it's really, it's just, it depends on the situation and what, how you like to yeah. fish. Do you like to weight your flies, or do you like to weight weight your leader? Depends again on the. <laughs> there's so many variations okay. there. Yeah. Yeah, I fish a lot of lakes because I have lakes. I have a good trout and bass. Well, panfish lake anyway. That's about eight minutes drive from my house that I fish a lot. And there are lakes everywhere here, as I was saying earlier. And so I use a lot of sinking lines, full sinking lines. And then mm-hmm. the only reason you would use weight in a fly with a full sinking line is to add a certain action to the fly. For example, if I'm tying a leech, I might put a small bead on the head to make it do that leech swim that they do, that kind of snake on its side, that serpentine thing. But normally, no, no weight on those. If I'm fishing a stream where I can, where I'm with nymphs, usually I try to weight the nymph on the bottom. I may only fish one nymph, then it's going to, if I have to make it real heavy, I'll make it real heavy. If that's not heavy enough, then you bet, I'll put split shot on my on my tippet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or I'll use okay. multiple extremely heavy flies. I'll do whatever I have yeah. to do, honestly. Simple as that. Yeah, to get it down there, yeah. yeah. Um, yep, it's got to get Bob down Fowler, to the fish. It's, yeah. Bob Fowler in Florida wants to know, how do you tie streamer wings so they are upright and aligned with the shank? That is true. Streamer wings get tricky. The cleanest looking streamer wings are going to be if you strip the fibers from just the very base of the stems because all the fibers that go back are not going to be, they're, they're going to be just sticking neatly out from the, the stem of the hackle. So that's the neatest way, but that's not the easiest way to get them into proper position. The easiest way is, and we're talking traditional streamers with the hair wing that goes back from just behind the head. The easiest way is to not strip that base of the hackles and leave those fibers on. And then those fibers have a tendency to just kind of gather around the stems and hold them in place. So that's one thing. Another thing is, here's a really important one. Well, that was too. But make your first (laughs) bindings of thread over those the butts of those wings. Make the first bindings under light tension. This is just to gather the everything together, but not too tightly so that it starts. See, when you, I'll back up a little bit and say that with thread, we're always dealing with thread torque. And what that means to fly tires is that as you wind things on, it tends to make things slide around the hook or roll on the hook. But light tension turns don't do that. So you get a layer of of light tension thread. I mean, there should be some tension there, but not much. Then you go over that with heavier tension turns. And now the light tension turns protect the feathers from thread torque. And then you go back with your heaviest turns for the third layer. And those really pack everything down. But those previous turns protect the feathers from rotating on the hook and going out of position. So those are the two things I would Mm -hmm. do is leave the okay, fibers on the, okay. on the base and, yeah, and, and do the ever tighter layers of thread. Jose Suarez in Argentina 
as uh, in a dry fly, does the color purple make a difference? And I'm wondering if these, like, think referring to like the purple haze or something like that, right? Because that fly is not that unique, other than its color, right? Yeah, it's it's almost. I mean, the body is not dubbing on the original, but it's almost the parachute atoms, but just in purple. Right. And there is now a purple parachute atoms, for that matter. Yeah, I think, okay, here's, that's an interesting, well, they're all interesting questions, honestly, but, but that one has a <laughs> bunch of different angles to it. First of all, I think there can be an advantage to showing trout, well, fish, any fish, uh, bass, stripers, you know, largemouths. Especially fish that have seen a lot of flies, have been stuck in the face with one, don't want to get stuck again. They get pretty cagey about recognizing flies. So when you show them something they haven't seen, especially something that's really, really different from anything they've seen, I don't know what the reaction is. I don't know if it's – there are a bunch of theories, but like, for example, curiosity, if you want to give that emotion to or quality to a trout or fish – there's also the fact that fish are always testing new food forms. So you give them something really different, and they, their instinct can be to, to test that out and see if it's edible, if they might discover a new source of food that they can you know, cash in on. But at any rate, you show them something different, and that can be a different shape, a different movement in the fly, or a different color. And when the purple haze came out, I don't know that I'd ever seen a purple dry fly before. Maybe there were right. around, but I don't remember it. And so I think that was what made that fly so effective, especially at first. And But it doesn't have to be purple. You could make a, I mean, chartreuse flies sometimes can really do well, and red flies and blue flies. I mean, this all sounds crazy, but these things can work on really cagey fish. And I think they work because of whatever the principle is. It's There's something in those fish that make kind of sparks them with a, something new and unusual. Right, right, right. Okay, we have two questions here that are somewhat related. David Rona in Michigan he says, I struggle with tying small dries, 18 to 22. Could you offer some advice? And then I have another one that came in on the Internet. He says, as, as we tires get older, do you recommend tying a 26 fly on a 20 hook? So can you kind of talk about tying small here and answer these guys' questions? Yeah, well, the first question was should I, you know, what? how can I tie more easily on yeah, the small ones. tiny hooks? Yeah, just go to big hooks. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. which answers the um, second question, right? Yeah. No, no, no. There are a number of things you can do that will make tying tiny flies easier. Uh, first, make sure you have good light, really good light. Second, make sure you have really good magnification. I mean, enough magnification of good quality. And honestly, again, over-the-counter good reading glasses will do the job, but that will make a big difference. Another one, this is really important, is use minimal thread turns because when you get into tiny flies, it doesn't take much. And if you use just a couple of turns too much of thread, three or four turns even, it can just make the fly too bulky and you're, you're wrestling with it. Um, and then use very very little material on tiny flies. It's amazing, like you're dubbing a, a little nymph or a, or a dry fly, size 20 or a 24 or something, all you need is a wisp of dubbing you can barely see. And when you spin it on the thread, it's going to give you all you need. It's surprising how little you can use and come out with what you want. 
Another thing I would say is use a fine thread. You don't have to go crazy, though. I, I tie often on size 22 hooks with dot thread, and because I minimize the number of turns of thread, uh, it's not a problem. I tie all kinds of stuff that way. But I have tied a Royal Coachman at size 26, and uh, I used thread that was, oh, I don't Jesus. think it's available anymore. You could break it just by looking at it, it seemed like. But uh, finer threads may help you. Uh, just make sure they're good ones. So, for example, this would be a good place maybe to look at Vivas because it is so strong, and they make really fine threads. Mm -hmm. and I think that covers it. Okay. Uh, another one on the Internet. And what was the second the question? The second well, it was, question? Yeah, it was, as we tires get older, do you recommend tying a small 26 fly on a, like, 20 hook? Good question. Well, no. I mean, you can definitely get away with that with the right situation and a lot of situations with the right situation. And if you can tie a fly small for the size of the hook, you're going to have more bite because the hook is bigger and have an advantage, a little better grip on the fish. But generally, no, I don't think that's the solution. For one thing, even if you have a bigger hook, you're still tying a fly the same size, so I don't know that it's going to be any easier to tie. And if your fish are on the cagey side, or very cagey especially, you know, Spring Creek trout or trout someplace like the South Platte in Colorado, where they're fished over all the time, they got lots of food, and they feed on small stuff all the time, uh, you're not going to be able to get away probably with tying a small fly on a hook too large for it. So, yeah. no, I don't okay. normally recommend that, but sometimes if you can get away with it, there are advantages. But it's fishing hey, advantages, not question. tying advantages. Yeah. Question from Phil McCartney in Kentucky. He says, I enjoy using dubbing loops to create flies with a variety of materials. I'd appreciate ideas for using delicate materials like aftershaft feathers in a loop and keeping them in the loop when it is spun. Hmm, that's a good, that's an interesting one. That kind of stuff can get tricky. Now, some materials, when I use a dubbing loop, and if, if you guys, if, well, for anybody who doesn't know what a dubbing loop is, it's a slightly advanced technique. You double the thread over, and that's really all it is, and you have a loop of thread that's bound to the hook, and then you put a material in that, a number of different ways you can do it, and then you spin it, and by spinning it, you lock the material in there. And it's, it's a very handy technique. You don't want to overspin because if you get it too tight, you really weaken the thread. It's under too much strain. You just want it tight enough to hold the material, and that's it. But as far as how to keep the, control the materials, that can get tricky depending on what you're doing. A lot of materials that are fragile and a little tricky, like, oh, uh, peacock hurl or ostrich hurl, I just go in and I wind the material around one side of the dubbing loop, and then I spin the loop, and that does a real good job. But aftershaft feathers, they're a little fragile. They're a little tricky. You can try some things. One thing I like to do is pinch the sides of the loop together around the material, and then that will hold the material enough, for example, an aftershaft feather, that I can reach down with my other hand and give it little tugs and get it centered in the loop. Then as long as I don't lighten up, you know, I don't let the loop open, if I keep it closed, the material is going to stay there. And then I just spin the spin the dubbing twister or whatever, however I'm doing it, dubbing whirl, and I'm in. But I think what really helps me is once I get that material set the way I want it, I let the loop hang over my finger with the dubbing whirl in the end, and the weight of the dubbing whirl pulls the thread tight, and being in the crook of my finger, 
the sides of the dubbing loop come together and lock the material in. And then I just spin the dubbing whirl. So another thing I would say is try uh, using dubbing wax on one or both sides of the dubbing loop. And then when you get the material set where you want it, the wax will tend to hold the material in position. And that's about okay. it on that. Okay, good. Well, we've run out of time here, Skip. As you said, we could have gone five hours tonight if we had the time. Yeah, we could have. Uh, <laughs> a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of things I would have still liked to talk, but there's, uh, bedtime is coming up here real quick. <laughs> so, uh, But stick with us, folks. We're going to, and, and you too, Skip, we're going to give away a couple prizes as well as a copy of your book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. And we'll do that right after this next break, and uh, we'll get some winners on the board here. So stick with me, and we'll, we'll give away those prizes real shortly. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our home page in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes, and the winners from our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show because you don't want to miss out on some of the great prizes that we have to offer. Now, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're giving away tonight is a membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. It's a great organization to support both freshwater, warm water, salt water. They cover all types of fishing and throughout the world. And so let me fire my database up here. And looks like our first winner is David Amalog. Amalong, I should say, Amalong, and uh, David's in Colorado, so uh, good for you, David. Congratulations, and I know you'll en enjoy your membership. And our second giveaway yeah, is for Fly, yeah, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, and they also publish many great fly fishing books and periodicals, so check them out, amatobooks.com. And... Our winner there is Jay Rios, Jay Rios in New Mexico. So there you go. Congrats, hey, hey. Uh, Jay. Yeah, yeah, I know you'll enjoy that. Good fly tying in that in that book and also other fly fishing. Uh, uh, so there we go. Now we're going to give away Skip's book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. And if you're listening in tonight because you're interested in fly tying, then that is uh, something you want to win, and if not, you can get that book out on Amazon. Just type it in there, Five Tying Made Clear and Simple, and uh, buy a copy if, if you don't win tonight and get yourself started fly tying. It's a lifelong passion for me, and I know for Skip, and, and it could be for you, so, so check that out. So 
the way you do this is you answer the question in that Oh, and I just Brian in Vernal, Utah says he wanted to just thank you for making a big impact on his tying life, Skip. So a uh, little oh, thank you. I am yeah. humbled. I'm glad I, I glad I could help. Yeah, and uh, let's uh, – more questions coming in. Sorry, guys, just no more time. Okay, so I've cleared my queue here. So you, you fill out your answer on that home page with your name and your location. First one that gets it right will win Skip's book, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. So the question is, is we've talked about tools, and uh, uh, Skip and I both agreed on um, the order in which we'd invest our money into tools. What order and what tools, that the three that we talked about, what were those tools, and you need to give them to me in the correct order from you know, the most you would invest in something to uh, on down the line. So let's see we get here. Um, sometimes this takes a minute for things to come in here, Skip, because they don't hear us right away. No, sure. And... Okay, some stuff's coming in here. Okay, I think, let's see, I think this is the one, yeah. Um, so correct me if we've got this answer correct, Skip, uh, vice, scissors, and then bobbin. That's the way I remember it. Yeah, that's the way I remember it too. So Greg Nichols in Alabama, you just got yourself a copy of Skip's book. So Greg, what you need to do is to send me, you can use the same text box you sent uh, your answer in, and give me your mailing address, and that will do it. And then we'll send that on to Stackpole, and Stackpole will send you out a book. So I've got your email address, yeah. I've got your name, I just need your, your shipping address, and we'll be good to go on that. So that's it. Um, yeah, yeah, good for paying attention, and I hope that uh, Skip's book will, will help you with your fly tying. I'm, I'm sure it will. Skip, thanks again for being on my show, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And, and of course, love you sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. Uh, it's always been great fun. So thanks again. Oh, you bet, Roger. Always a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, good, good. Catch you next time. And hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our site. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top-line menu. And in that archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 350 shows, which you can search by keyword, you know, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, fly tying, just about anything, and you're going to find loads of shows on all kinds of topics. So check it out and enjoy and enjoy your learning. Our next broadcast will be on June 22nd. June 22nd. I just want to make sure I got that date right. And uh, our show will be, just make sure before I goof that, yeah, June 22nd, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show, I'm going to interview Tom Rosenbauer and uh, from Orvis, and our topic for the show will be uh, hatch strategies. Tom has been with Orvis for over 30 years and has shared his knowledge across many topics. One of the most studied yet intimidating aspects of fly fishing for trout is understanding insect hatches. Tom will enlighten us on entomology and also on how to approach trout 
how to find where they feed and how to present the fly so it is accepted as natural food without hesitation. Join us and learn some new techniques to catch more fish. And be sure to add that upcoming show to your calendar on our homepage. Just go under Tom's picture there, click on Add to Calendar, and then you can add it to your calendar so you don't miss that live show. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Enrico Puglisi Flies, and the Eggly Rug Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Oh.